Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When my children were little, I used to um, really enjoy putting together birthday parties for them, and I'm pretty sure they enjoyed them too. Um, We lived in a small house that had a big garden, and Katerina's birthday was in April, so it was always um, possible to have, or mostly, to have outdoor birthday parties. And this one year, um, I decided it would, I think they were, she was maybe eight, um, to do a treasure hunt in the garden. And so I bought a big bag of those plastic combs that you can get in the dollar store or wherever, and I bought some puffy paint, and I decorated each of the combs. Yes, I was nuts, Um, but I did. I decorated each of the combs and wrote the child's name um, on it and then wrapped it up in tissue paper and hid it. And they had a treasure hunt. They had clues that they needed to follow to be able to find that. Once they got the comb, they could go to the young girl who I had had come in to braid or to do whatever with their hair. So that meant that there wasn't a huge queue in front of these two girls because some of them took a little bit longer than the others to find all of the clues. And it actually worked out fairly well. I think we only had maybe one or two clues go missing along the way and we needed to show them the way. Well, what does treasure hunt have to do with our readings today? Well, in a sense, John's gospel is set up like a treasure hunt. And instead of using the word clues, he uses the word signs. And so throughout John's gospel, it's about signs pointing to a treasure. And to be able to find out what this is, we need to first of all go to John's prologue, the introduction to his gospel, and then to the end of the gospel to find what is this treasure that John keeps giving signs towards. In the beginning, he says at the very beginning of his gospel, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He was in the world, and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And as John is wrapping up his gospel, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these, these signs, those that have gone before in the book, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, the treasure is the greatest treasure in heaven and on earth. Treasure is Jesus Christ in whom heaven and earth are knit together, are united. And so the signs show forth his glory. The shines manifest, our epiphany word, or reveal who Jesus is as that person where heaven and earth come together in the person of Jesus. That's the treasure because once we recognize that treasure, we may have life in his name. Immediately prior to this, the gospel reading that we had this morning, um, John the Baptist has recognized Jesus, has pointed him out to the crowds around him as the Lamb of God. And Jesus has come along and he has called Andrew and Simon Peter, the brothers, the fishermen. He's also called Philip and he's called Nathaniel, who he saw underneath the tree. And when Philip goes, of course, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus comes and says, I saw you under the tree and I know what you were thinking about, what you, you know who you are. And at that point, Nathaniel, who actually comes from Cana of Galilee, we hear later on in John's Gospel, where our today's Gospel reading the story takes place, and, and uh, so he recognizes at that moment that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see heaven opened. And so for John, each of these signs are a sign when heaven opens. When we look into a different reality than the one we're used to looking at, when our rational eyes give way to the eyes of faith and we see heaven opened and angels descending and ascending on Jesus, when we see heaven's realm coming to bear in earth's dimension, that's what happens with each of the signs. And so John says, this is the first of the signs that Jesus did. This story in today's gospel, the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, is the first of the signs. And then a couple of chapters later, he says, this is the second of the signs. And you can go on your own treasure hunt and find that one. But those are the only two that he actually numbers. The rest of them... Uh, you're going to have to find for yourself as you read through. You know, look out for the word sign, but look also in John's Gospel at where the revealing is happening, where heaven's opened and Jesus is revealed in his glory to see who he really is. So how does this 
uh, this wedding feast and what Jesus does there, how does that reveal his glory? How does that manifest? How does that epiphany who Jesus is? What is the revealing? What is the sign showing us right now? Well, first of all, um, he starts it off by saying on the third day. Now, before that, he's just said next he did, and he'll go on to say after this he did. He's very specific here. This is the first sign, and he says on the third day. That would automatically take our minds to another third day, right? The third day, which is the ultimate sign. The third day after the crucifixion, when the sign of Jesus' glory is shown forth in an empty tomb, on Easter morning, but this is the third day. The third day of what? But for John, it's important to say it's the third day. And it's rather notable to to see that he uses, John uses the backdrop of a very ordinary, homely event for this first sign. It's a wedding. It's a wedding in a small little town, probably no more than a village. And, you know, everybody's come from miles around, family, friends. It's a wedding. It's this wonderful celebration of new life together, husband and wife knit together now as one flesh. But it's also interesting to note that throughout Scripture, God uses this image of a husband and wife, of his relationship as spouse to his beloved, to his people. Indeed, we saw that in the reading from Isaiah today. You shall be called my delight. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then there's that terribly sad book in the prophets where, uh, Jesus, where God uses Hosea and his wife as an example of a brokenness because Gomer, Hosea's wife, goes off and is adulterous with other lovers. And God says, that's how I feel. That's how my broken heart feels when you go off after other gods. This image of the intimacy of a marriage goes throughout Scripture. God is the the bridegroom. He's the husband. He's the spouse. He's the one who looks after, who cares, who loves, who delights. In the bride, remember the church is the bride of Christ. In Revelation, and I saw, says John, the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it's in this context of a celebration, of a wonderful celebration of new life together, of the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee that our story is set. Now, there's some other detail in there that we might have missed, uh, but it's interesting to note that John wants to make sure that we know that the disciples were invited. Evidently, Mary has received her own invitation. Jesus has received his invitation. And the disciples have also been personally invited. In other words, they're not just kind of all there as a group because by association they're there. They've been personally invited. So the assumption is that they know either the bride or the bridegroom or quite possibly in this village life, both of them. And we hear that the wine runs out. Evidently, the steward doesn't know this because later on, the one who's kind of distributing the wine isn't yet aware of this catastrophe. Because in this culture, if you run out of wine, there is shame involved. And for now on, the villagers are going to point out and say, you know, they're the couple where the wine ran out. And the whole family is shamed. So they don't go to the steward in panic and say, we've run out of wine. They go to Mary. This is the first sign, remember. Jesus has not yet done any miracles that anybody knows about. So Mary must be really intimately known by this couple. Catastrophe is about to strike. Can you help? They go to Mary, and who does Mary go to? She goes to her son, Jesus, and says they've run out of wine. Kind of like, you know, you go to your son, what are you going to do about it? And he says, woman, you know, my time's not yet come. It's interesting to note in John's Gospel, there are two places where we read about Mary. This is one, and the other one is when his time has come at the cross. When the fullness of the time that Jesus came for, taking our sins upon him, Mary is there at the foot of the cross, and his words to her there are, Woman, this is your son, as he turns to John, the writer of this gospel, and to John, this is your mother, and hands her and him together as mother and daughter. But at this time, she completely ignores what he says and just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do, whatever it is. So nobody's seen a miracle yet. But Mary turns to Jesus because, remember, she's had the announcement of the angel. He is God with us. So she turns to him and turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And so what does he do? He says, um, see these water jars. Now, can you have in your mind like a 30-gallon garbage pail? You know how big those are? 
uh, just have that in your mind. There are six of them lined up here. And he says to the stewards, you fill them up. Well, they don't kind of, you know, fill them up partially. They fill them up to the brim. Do you know what it looks like when it's filled to the brim? There's kind of that little kind of circle over the water that it's so full that one drop more and it's going to overflow. That's how filled up these are. They've really filled it to the top. Why he puts that in there, I don't know, but it's filled to the full. There's no more space to put any more water in. And then all he says is, take some to the steward. And so this, the, the servants have seen what's happened. I don't know whether Mary or not has gone off back and said, don't worry about it, he's got it all covered. But the steward then, so they take this. Jesus hasn't blessed the water. He hasn't done a thing. He's just said, fill it up, take that over to the steward. And the steward tastes it and then goes to the bride and the bridegroom and says, wow, you've kept the best for last. You know, normally what we do with these things, um, we give you what somewhat decent at the front end. And then when everybody is drunk so much that they can't taste a thing anymore, then we put the worst kind of wine in there. You've done the reverse. You've given the best at the last. You know, you know I have Facebook, and there's one uh, wonderful Facebook post some of you might have seen. It's a picture of a grocery shelf. And the notice above the grocery shelf is um, bottled water um, with however much bottled water goes for. Uh, But underneath, there are these racks of wine. And at the bottom, it says, Jesus was here. (laughs) The feast, the wedding feast of the Cana, Cana of Galilee. Jesus turns the water into wine. Why? How does that reveal his glory? How is this a sign of uh, the glory of the revealing of heaven opened and uh, heaven revealed within Jesus? Well, first of all, I think I want to say that Jesus, in the midst of all of our everyday lives, it, it doesn't need something absolutely huge to happen to give it over to Jesus. Running out of wine at a wedding feast. What what is the small thing that's happening in your life? It's never too small for Jesus. If it's big enough for you, it's big enough for Jesus. So he's there in the midst of all of it. See, water in the New Testament, also is a revealing of something about Jesus. It's the best. It's the best that we can get from Jesus. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's gone out in the midday because she can't be with anybody else because of her background, because of her life, because of what she's done. And yet Jesus goes and talks to her. He should never have been talking to a woman, let alone this woman. Yet he goes and he talks to her. And she's pouring out and he says, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then looking at the water in the well, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See that filled to the brim? That's the image again. Filled with the living water, which is God's Holy Spirit, the living water of God's Spirit welling up, brimful, to overflowing. And then on the steps of the temple in John's Gospel at the Feast of the Tabernacles, when the priests would normally pour the water down um, in fulfillment or trying to, going back in memory to Ezekiel's prophecy, where the water rises up around the temple. And he says this, he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. How can we drink Jesus? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. And remember, at the Last Supper, he takes the wine and says, This is my blood. Water and wine. These images that to our eyes seem to be one thing. And yet the heavens are opened and we see something else. We see God's Holy Spirit coming and filling us. His blood turned to wine, his, the wine turned to blood, feeding us with himself. All of these signs in John's Gospel reveal transformational life because Jesus is in the business of transformation. He turns water into wine. He turns fallen lives into whole lives. He turns sadness into joy. He turns sickness into health. Heaven is opened and it continues because even though he ascended to the Father, he left the Spirit. So that all of these signs where heaven's realm intersects earth's realm, that's still true today. It can still be true in our lives if we listen to Mary's exhortation, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Is there a pending catastrophe in your life? Are you facing failure, a disappointment, something that needs transformation in your life? Go back to this story. Pray through it with yourself in the story. Are you the servants who see this amazing miracle take place? Are you the bride and the bridegroom worried about the shame that might come?
Are you the steward who says, this is amazing. You've kept the best for last. Put yourself back into the story. Hear Mary say to you, do whatever he tells you to do. And then see Jesus do the work of transformation. Because remember, John wrote his book of signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen.